On the sixth day, the heavens and the earth and all their hosts were completed. And God ceased from his labors and rested on the seventh day. And God blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. He made it a day of rest and refreshing to be a sign between him and all of Israel. We thank God for the joy of life. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech Olam Borei Prihagahafin Amen Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. We thank God for our daily provision. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech Olam Amotzi lechem min haaretz. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth and has given us the true bread from heaven in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has hallowed us with your commandments, has desired us, and has given us in love and goodness your holy Shabbat as a heritage, in remembrance of the work of creation, the first of the holy festivals, commemorating the exodus from Egypt. For you have chosen us and sanctified us from among all the nations with love and goodness, and have given us your holy Shabbat as a heritage. Blessed are you, O Lord, who hallows the Shabbat. Amen the blessings over wives, mothers, and widows. May the Lord bless you as you care and nurture our families. May he bless and strengthen your hands as you serve the needs of others. May your children rise up and call you blessed. May your husband value you above riches and glory. May the Lord clothe you with dignity and adorn you with loving kindness. The blessings over our children May the Lord bless and keep you. May he look upon you with a smile. May he watch over you and protect you from harm. And to our sons, may you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. To our daughters, may you be as Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, and Rachel. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom, everyone. I'm Monty Judah. Welcome to another Arab Shabbat service here at B'nai Shalom. We are now into the third portion of the book of Numbers, book of Bar. If you would turn with me to Numbers chapter 8, our Torah portion, it's one of the most difficult names for me to speak. Other people can speak it very easily. Bahalashaka, and what, that's a terrible version, but it means when you mount up, when you mount up, and it comes from the phrase, in verse 2, speak to Aaron and say to him, when you mount the lamps, the seven lamps will give light in the front of the lampstand. This portion, now as having received the gifts from the various tribes, and the princes of each tribe had presented the gifts that are to be used in the tabernacle, it's now talking about some of the finishing touches in how the tabernacle was set up. This first portion has to do with the lampstand, and specifically the instructions given how that the priests are the only ones that were authorized to light the lamps. Even the king was not permitted to go in or nor anyone else. They were the ones who would trim the lamp, put new oil into it, put new wicks into it, and illuminate it. Before we go any further with that, we have to consider how powerful a symbol this lampstand has become. If you look at the crest of Israel, you will see there's a seven menorah, a temple menorah, and it's got some olive branches on the sides. That's the crest of it. The menorah is a very common symbol for the Jewish people, for many of their assemblies and synagogues. Even the messianic symbol that we have of the menorah on top, the star in the middle, the fish on the bottom, is a very powerful symbol that's used for us. And a lot of Christians don't know this, but that's actually what is referred to as the secret symbol of the churches. The last verse in Revelation chapter 1, 
when the Messiah was seen by the Apostle John there at the book of Revelation, he saw seven stars and he saw seven candle stands, and they were seven menorahs. The Messiah was standing in the midst of them. The symbology of what John saw is explained in the last verse of chapter 1. It says that the stars that they saw represented the angels, the messengers of those seven churches, but the menorahs themselves represented the seven churches. And it's the secret symbol of churches. If you go further into chapter 2, where it's talking about the letters to the seven churches, the very first church, the accusation that's made against that church is they've lost their first love. And so God says, you need to get that first love back. You need to get it back. And then he threatens them, and he says, if you don't do it, I will remove my lampstand from you. Now, let's be honest. If you go out to basic Christian churches today, the seven candelabra menorah is not the symbol of those churches. And if this really is a message to them, and he's telling them that if they don't get their first love back, he's going to remove their lampstand from them, that would be like, so, big deal. That, that didn't hurt us. That didn't do anything to us. You do realize that what the Messiah is threatening is supposed to be a very serious thing. But if you're talking to a messianic assembly, and God says, if you don't get this corrected, I will remove my lampstand from you, that's a very serious thing that could happen to a messianic assembly because that menorah is a symbol that represents our assembly. The menorah also has some other symbology into it. The seven candles are supposed to represent the seven spirits of God and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the very center one. Now, where did I get this seven spirits thing? That comes from the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 11, it lists off what the seven spirits of God are. And they exist from the spirit of wisdom, spirit of knowledge, the spirit of strength, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of, of understanding, and the spirit of the fear of the Lord. The center one is called the spirit of the Lord. And Isaiah is making the argument the reason why the Messiah is the Messiah is because he has all seven spirits. In other words, he has all of God in him. And those candlesticks, those seven that are in the morrow, is, is a representation of the Holy Spirit being in the midst of the temple. Let me remind you of the placement of some of the furnishings in the tabernacle. There is, in the Holy of Holies, we have the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat, and that's where God the Father sits. You have beyond the veil, out toward this way, on the right side as you walk in, you have a table of showbread, the bread of faces, we call it, and the Messiah himself said that he was the bread from heaven, that if you ate of him, you'd never be hungry again. And to the left is the menorah, the lampstand with the oil that is fed into it, symbolization of the Holy Spirit. So you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three key symbols in the tabernacle sitting there. And there's a crown around the mercy seat. There's a crown around the table over here. And then we have the candlestick of the menorah. For us, we are under the benefit, if you will, primarily as God interfaces with right now, with the Holy Spirit. The Father is still seated in heaven. He's given his commandments, established his covenants. The Son has come and done the work of redemption, and he's returned to the Father. Now we have the benefit of the Holy Spirit. So this menorah symbol is a very powerful symbol to us in our faith. And as I mentioned to you before, the Messiah directly associates that symbol with the brethren of today. Now, what this portion goes into is and explains how the priests are the ones who are going to take care of that. And then he also next, he goes into, now that we have the tabernacle built and so forth, the priesthood, the Levites that are going to assist Aaron and his sons, we have to prep them. We have to get them ready for their service. And so there's a procedure here about them being cleansed. And this cleansing thing is that they have to shave all their hair off their body. And they have to be clean-shaven and bathed, 
clean clothes on when they come to do the work of the service of the tabernacle. And by the way, there was a lot of work associated with it that the priests themselves did not do. Transporting it, moving it to its new location, erecting the elements and taking them down and transporting it. That all fell on the other Levites, but not on the priests. The priestly duty does not begin until he's 25 years of age and extends to 50 years of age. Those were the priests that would render the service inside of the temple and the tabernacle. Now, the, the older ones could assist, but they couldn't do the work. The priest had to be the ones doing the work. I'm not going to get into all the detail, but later on, some of this got really fouled up. When Israel was finally in the land and they had built the temple in Jerusalem, it was a well-known practice that a lot of Levites, priests who had the duty, they would hire somebody to do the duty for them. And they would just fill a person in there and pay him for it. And they even had people come in and do the priestly work in the temple that weren't even Israelites. And this is one of the reasons why we have this so-called Essene community that John the Baptist, we think, was part of. They were people who were objecting to the fact that the, the whole priestly system, the whole temple system, had been corrupted and that they were not following the rules that had been given by Moses here in this portion. That's a whole nother study and subject that you can pursue if you want. I'm just going to introduce it to you and go through, through a little further into this portion. The next item that it addresses, and this is now in chapter 9 and getting at verse 15, once we have the priesthood established, we've got all this stuff that's ready to go, it now talks about the movement of the cloud. And if you recall, the children of Israel, when they were in the wilderness, there was a cloud that would move them and tell them where to camp and where to stay. And so there's an explanation about this cloud, how it would work. If you look with me in chapter 9 and beginning at verse 15, it says the following. Now, on the day that the tabernacle was erected, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the meeting. And in the evening, it was like the appearance of a fire over the tabernacle until morning. So it was continuously the cloud would cover it by day and the appearance of fire by night. And when the cloud was lifted from over the tent, afterward the sons of Israel would then set out, and in the place where the cloud settled, there the sons of Israel would camp. And at the command of the Lord, the sons of Israel would set out, and at the command of the Lord, they would camp. Long as the cloud settled over the tabernacle, they remained camped. And even when the cloud lingered over the tabernacle for many days, the sons of Israel would keep the Lord's charge and not set out. If sometimes the cloud remained in a few days over a tabernacle according to the command of the Lord, they remained camped. Then according to the command of the Lord, they set out. If sometimes the cloud remained from the evening until the morning, then the cloud was lifted in the morning, they would move out. Or if it remained in the daytime and at night, whenever the cloud was lifted, they would set out. Whether it was two days or a month, or a year that the cloud lingered over the tabernacle, staying above it, the sons of Israel remained camped and did not set out. But when it was lifted, they did set out. At the command of the Lord, they camped. And at the command of the Lord, they set out. And they kept the Lord's charge according to the command of the Lord through Moses. That's a very interesting statement because if you examine the behavior of the children of Israel going through the wilderness, the one thing, basically the one and only thing, that they did correctly at the command of the Lord was follow the cloud. And we believe, if you go through the rest of the other prophecies, we believe the Messiah's presence was in that cloud. The cloud was leading them to where they should go. We believe the Messiah's presence was in the cloud. If you recall, that cloud went behind the camp of Israel protected them at the crossing of the Red Sea, kept Pharaoh and his chariots away until the children of Israel were able to cross, but normally would out, be out front leading them. And once the tabernacle was built, once it was erected, that cloud would hover over the tabernacle, and it would, if it got up and started to move, the people got up and they started to move. Now, 
what follows here in chapter 10, this first part, is explaining how the children of Israel would actually move. So the cloud comes up, the Levites come in, they pack up the tabernacle, they're ready to go, and it goes forward. And the first tribe to then go forward was the tribe of Judah. And it says here, and then it gives the sequence of the tribes in the order that they would march out. And again, they were in what we call martial array. And martial array is that system, it's like a militaristic camp. In other words, there's an order to it, just like the military would have rank and file. There's an order to what they did. And that's what would transpire as they would travel through the wilderness. Now we come to one of my most favorite parts of the book of Numbers. And I'm specifically referring now to the end of chapter 10. And let me begin to read to you from verse 33. Thus they set out from the mount of the Lord three days' journey with the ark of the covenant of the Lord journeying in front of them for three days and seek out a resting place for them. Now, there's one other procedure that they used to do when they would be marching around in the wilderness. When this cloud would lift up and they began to put the equipment ready to go so they could travel, there was a pronouncement that was made that meant we're going to go. And it's in verse 35, which said, Then it came about when the ark set out that Moses said, Rise up, O Lord, let thy enemies be scattered. Let those who hate thee flee from before thee. And he's out front. He's leading the children of Israel. Any enemies come up against it, they're going to have to come up against where the Lord is at. And then when the ark would rest, in other words, when when the cloud would come to a standstill, then Moses would make the following pronouncement. Verse 36, And when it came to rest, he said, Return thou, O Lord, to the myriads of thousands of Israel. Two very interesting verses that has to do when you go forward and when you stop during the wilderness experience. The scribes do something very interesting with the text in this particular place, and it's very noteworthy. In front of verse 35, if you had a Torah scroll in front of you, in, in front of verse 35, there's a separation in the line of the text, and there's a single character, a single Hebrew character put into that place where the line would have been. It's the letter noon, and the letter noon, it looks kind of like a bracket. And the scribes do something very interesting. They invert it. They write it out to the reverse. And then at the end of verse 36, they do the same thing again. They take the letter noon and they invert it. In fact, they're called the inverted noons in the Torah. Now, that character has made its way through the years in many languages and so forth. Today is what we commonly call a bracket. Now, when you see printed text, and, and you, it's different from a parenthesis. A parenthesis is the added information, which is parenthetically inserted into the text. It amplifies something that just got said. But a bracket is totally different. A bracket is a whole body of information that's not part of the original text, but it's information that we're going to place here because while you're dealing with this, we want you to also be aware of this other thing over here that exists as well. And so what has happened is the scribes, through the use of the inverted noon, the, the first bracket, if you will, they have isolated and separated out verse 35 and 36 from all the rest of the book of Numbers. So let me tell you what they say about these two verses. Torah teachers will say this to you. They say that the wisdom in these two verses is equivalent to the wisdom of the entire book of Genesis, the entire book of Exodus, the entire book of Leviticus, more than the first part of Book of Numbers, more than the second half of the Book of Numbers, more than the book of Deuteronomy. 
that the wisdom in these two verses is more than any of those others. In fact, the wisdom in these verses are equal to the wisdom of any of the other books. My goodness, what in the world is going on here? There is a phrase in the book of Proverbs where we talk about Moses and the five books of Moses, but the five books of the Torah are now referred to as the seven pillars of wisdom. If you ever hear the expression, the seven pillars of wisdom, what we're referring to is within the Torah, you have come to these two verses, which has dissected the book of Numbers into three parts. We have from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 10, verse 33. Then there's a whole separate thing of these two verses, and then everything that follows in chapter 11 and on for the book of Numbers, that, that's another element. And they're called, as a result of this three element, and you have the other four books, it's called the seven pillars of wisdom. Let me tell you, if you attend a synagogue service, a traditional Torah service, usually done on Sabbath day, the moment that they open the ark up to bring the Torah scroll out, the cantor is going to cant verse 35. He's going to cant the words, Rise up, O Lord, let thy enemies be scattered, and let those who hate thee flee from before you. That's what's going to be said the moment the Torah scroll comes out of the ark in front of the people. The moment they put the Torah scroll back into the ark, the cantor is going to cant, return thou, O Lord, to the myriads of thousands of Israel when they put it back away. And they're symbolizing the rising up of the cloud, how the children of Israel would travel, and then the settling of the cloud back again. And part of every synagogue service is to remember this was the order and this was the way that we would travel at the command of the Lord. Now, well, that's kind of interesting religious understanding. But the real question is, why did they use the letter noon, and why is it drawn backwards here? Because, you know, every Hebrew letter has a meaning. The letter noon actually means fish. The, the, the hieroglyphic of the letter noon is it's a fish. His head is cocked to one side, his tail is cocked the same way. And the idea is that fish is about to kick his tail and swim off real quickly. And the, the meaning behind that is the phrase, the quickening of life. So when you see the letter noon, it's talking about suddenly life comes forth. Every time I go out to a lake, and this happens to me every time, every time I go out to a lake, I'm looking over the lake, and all of a sudden there's a splash out there in the lake. And like an idiot, I respond to that every time I go, oh, there, you know, there's a, there's a fish. Of course there's fish in it, dummy. That's a lake. It has lots of fish. And yeah, they come up to the surface every once in a while. But that exhilarating feeling, that moment when you catch it out of the periphery of your eye or you hear the sound or it's that fish flipping his tail and he splashes a little bit, suddenly you see life. Or the same thing when you walk up to a small stream and it's transparent and there's a fish that was just sitting there and you walk up, he sees you and all of a sudden he swims away real quickly. Oh, oh, I see, I see, you know, the quickening of life. So what does it mean when you draw that letter backwards? What does it mean to the scribes then? Well, at that point, it means the quickening of life from the dead. It means the resurrection. This is the symbol of the resurrection. Now, in Aramaic, not block Hebrew, in Aramaic, they actually draw a fish. That's the Aramaic letter for the letter noon in Hebrew, and it's the symbol of the resurrection. And the reason why all of the new believers after Yeshua came and left, the reason why they used that symbol was because the most dominant thing that was in the faith in the early days after Yeshua was resurrected was his resurrection. I mean, yes, he had come and taught. Yes, he had been, he had been crucified. Yes, 
There were some disciples following. Yes, there was all that stuff. But the thing that was getting everybody's attention was he was resurrected. He didn't stay in the grave. He came out of the grave. He ascended to the Father. No man does that. So that symbol became very, very powerful. And the first messianic symbol is that symbol of the menorah over the top of the Star of David coming down to the fish symbol, commonly seen today by messianic believers. Jewish people and those joined with them that believe that Yeshua of Nazareth was the Messiah, is the Messiah, will be the Messiah, and that he was, he's the king of Israel, and he's that lamp, he's that light to us, and he's the fish. He was the resurrected one that came from that. Very powerful, very powerful symbol. I got something really exciting to show you now based on that. If you would turn me over to the Psalms, and I believe we want to go to Psalms 107. Let me go there very quickly. These in inverted noons, there's two of them here in the Torah. In Psalms 107, there's seven of them. Wow. What in the world is in Psalms 107? that is the, the level of wisdom to use this sign of the resurrection. Let me take you to where you'll find him. When you go to Psalms 107, beginning at verse 28, for the next six verses, that's verse 29, verse 30, verse 31, verse 32, you're going to see one of these inverted noons preceding every one of those verses. And then at verse 40, you'll see the seventh one. Let me, let me read the verses to you. This is Psalms 107. Let me read to you beginning at verse 28. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distresses. He caused the storm to be still, so that the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad when they were quiet, so he guided them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his righteousness his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. Let them extol him also in the congregation of people and praise the seat of the elders. And verse 40 says, he pours out contempt upon princes and makes them wander in a pathless ways. Now there's two ways that you could take this passage of scripture. Let me tell you the way that is predominantly taken. This obviously in Psalms 107 is talking about the Jonah story. Jonah got on that ship, and he was trying to get away from the Lord. He didn't want to go to Nineveh, okay? And so the Lord caused a great storm to come up. And if you remember the story of, of, of that, they pulled out straws, and they were trying to determine the lot, who has upset Almighty God that would cause us all to be threatened, and whoever that guy is, we're going to get him off this ship and give him back to God. Sure enough, Jonah... The lot fell on him, and they threw him into the sea, and he was swallowed by a whale. That's the story. You remember all that. So the sailors were on the ship. They were in great distress, and by the Lord, the Lord calmed everything and got them to their desired haven, and they were praising God that they were delivered. And so we have this story of Jonah being reminded to us. By the way, if you remember, the people, especially religious leaders, came up and challenged Yeshua one day and said, give us a sign. You know, give us a sign. He said, only an evil and adulterous generation would ask for a sign. I will not give you a sign except for one. I will give you the sign of Jonah, that the Son of Man will be in the earth like Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights. I'll give you the sign of Jonah. Well, guess what? Jonah coming out of the whale is a picture of resurrection. He's, he's come back to life. He was going to die. Actually, he was going to get digested by the whale. I mean, that's death. But instead, God brought him out of the belly of the whale and put him up on the beach, and he lived, and that the Messiah will come out of the earth in the same way, and he will not be corrupted and so forth. So we see it as that. But now for us, as Messianic believers, if you go back in the gospel account, you remember the night 
It was after all the disciples were out on the boat. They were on the Sea of Galilee, and Yeshua's asleep. And all of a sudden, a storm comes up, and they're all concerned. They wake him up, and he caused the storm to quiet. He had the power over the, the elements, and he got them to their port very quickly thereafter. In either case, this is talking about the sign of the resurrection. It's talking about the Messiah's role in the resurrection. Now, let me take you back to our Torah portion in Numbers chapter 10. The symbol now represents the resurrection. So let's look at this again. The first verse, Then it came about when the ark set out that Moses said, Rise up, O Lord, let thy enemies be scattered. Let those who hate from flee before you. You know what that is? That's the resurrection of Yeshua, the Messiah. And in fact, the Apostle Paul, who knew this scripture very well, is going to tell you in 1 Corinthians 15, when he's talking about the resurrection, that when he rose up, he scattered his enemies and he defeated death. He's making reference to this verse, that the Messiah has cast away his hand. He's defeated his enemies by coming out of the grave. So who's the second resurrection about? It says, return thou, O Lord, to the myriads of, of thousands of Israel. What, when we talk about the, the return of the Lord, what are we talking about? We're talking about the second coming. We're talking about the Lord returns. And by the way, when he returns, there's going to be a resurrection. Now, what most Christians talk about is there's going to be a rapture. You know, that's the people that are still alive at the day the resurrection comes. But the, the, the prophecy is really talking about the resurrection that will be when the Messiah returns. And those who are still alive will be caught up together with him, will all be with the Lord. But I want you to take a look at the number they're trying to express here in verse 36 to the myriad thousands of Israel. And whenever you see the word myriad that the translators use, they're trying to express the largest number that can be expressed in the Hebrew. And we don't, by the way, we don't have a word for millions and billions. We don't have a word for that in the Hebrew. But what we do have is we have this cluster where we say myriad thousands. In other words, myriad is a very large number, even greater than thousands, time thousands. A greater number, more than thousands, time thousands. Now, in the days of Yeshua, if you were to count up all of Israel, it would not equal that number. When could that number possibly take place? How about at the end of the ages? How about all the saints that have ever been? How about all of us in the day that we live in, the greatest generation in the history of the world? Would our number be such a great number that it would be beyond millions and thousands? Yes, that's the number that is appropriate to describe the saints at the end of the ages. So what's it talking about? It's talking about our resurrection. This is called the sign of the resurrection. It's this fish symbol. That's the sign of the resurrection. And I purposely put that on my Bible. It's a popular thing on some Bibles. I put it on my Bible so I could teach you Numbers chapter 10. Two verses in the Torah that have the equivalent wisdom of the other books of Moses to produce the seven pillars of wisdom. And whether you realize it or not, every Sabbath in a traditional synagogue or Messianic service that has a Torah scroll, this is what is taught to you and you're told about every Sabbath of what's becoming at the end of the age when the resurrection comes for us as well. Let me go ahead and tell you and complete kind of what else is in this chapter. In chapter 11, we begin to get into the experiences of the children of Israel in the wilderness. We are, we're a fickle people. We can see God do things for us that are exciting. We can hear his voice on the mountain. We're all excited for a couple of days, and then we forget. We forget that happened. We could have the resurrection of Yeshua. My goodness, boy, that, that was incredible. People were walking around talking about that and so on. 
didn't take too long after where, you know, that just didn't come to mind anymore. We were busy with other stuff. We were looking around and so forth. We're very, we, we, we can't hold on to a lot of times some of these incredible things that God does for us and, and retain them and keep them fresh. Now, God wants us to. In fact, he keeps giving us commandments. Remember this. Keep remembering these things. Remember to keep the Sabbath holy. It comes every week. Remember where it came from, what it means. And so keep that going kind of thing. But we're humans. And we get preoccupied with all different kinds of stuff, and we forget. And we get on to other things and so forth. One of the things that God says about his character and who he is versus mankind, he says that the Lord can't forget us. In fact, the question is posed, is it possible for a mother to forget her nursing child? I mean, the child that is intimately with her all the time is being nursed and fed daily. Okay, is it possible that she could forget him for for some other moment? And the answer is yes. This happens to mothers all the time. They've got a small baby they take care of, but something else happens, and oh, oh, oh I forgot the child. I got to go back and take care of the child. The Lord says, hey, it's possible for a mother to do that, but it's not possible for me, God, to forget you. Wow. And so he's constantly giving his commandments to remember things, to, to stay in touch with him all the time. And one of our great downfalls is we don't. Now, what we have here is the story in chapter 11. They proceed to forget the Lord. And the next thing you know, why they're more concerned about the complaints about what's going on and this manna, you know, and so forth. And they get to the point where they say, we're kind of getting tired of this manna, you know, this bread that God gives us every day. You know, it's too bad we can't have free fish that we had back in Egypt. And it's too bad we don't have meat, more meat to eat, you know, and things like that. And so God decides to address the issue. And this is when he sends the quail to the people. Interestingly, in that part of the Middle East where this wilderness experience was going, quail make their annual migration through that area going from Africa into Europe. And so it's, it's a well-known thing. The quail will fly. They're very tired, and they'll land on the ground, and they're so tired they have to rest for a while, and you can just pick them up. And that's what happened. God brought the quail. They went out and they picked them up and they got to eat quail. They got meat. But they were doing it for lust, for the reasons of lust. They were not doing it because they were thankful of God and so forth. And God put a, a curse on them and a plague on them. The moment they, they bit the meat, they, they died. L let me give you a little bit more about what their choices were. They're sitting beside the banks of the Red Sea. If they wanted meat to eat, all they had to do was go out and go fishing. They could have got fish. They had flocks and herds they had brought with them. If they really wanted some hamburger, go out and get one of those cows. If they wanted some lamb, go, go get a lamb. They're right there at your feet. And in fact, the question is posed by Moses where he says, when God says, I will give them meat to eat. And Moses says, well, do you want us to fish? Do you want us to slaughter the herds? And he said, no, 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 I will give it to them. Well, he does. Because they were greedy, because they were full of lust for the thing. And verse 34, it says that this, is, this place called Kirbroth Hatava is called the Graves of the Lust. There was a whole bunch of children of Israel who all of a sudden, despite everything God had done before, they decided eating meat was more important than everything else going on. It was more important than the freedom they'd been given, more important than the covenant God had made with them. That's what they were focused on. So God said, okay, you're purely greedy and you're lusting after food. You're not paying attention to me. I'll give you meat to eat and it will be your death. By the way, there's a very interesting principle there. If you are pursuing anything beyond the Lord and committing your life to it, you'll die by it. 
it'll have something to do with your death. It'll tie into your death. We continue on with other complaints that took up about Moses. You know, no matter how you organize people, you get a group of people together, and let's say that the leader's doing a spectacular job. He's leading the people well. People are being ministered to. Everything is going wonderful. And as they proceed on, then all of a sudden, there's a mumble, a grumble about the leader. Okay. The leader is failing to do such and such. The leader's not emphasizing this enough. Uh, the leader said this. I disagree with that. And then the, the whole assembly begins to mumble and grumble. The standing joke that I grew up with was that you went to church on Sunday, and then you came home and you ate a roast dinner of the preacher for lunch. You'd roast the preacher for lunch. Now, there was actually a real roast there, but everybody's discussion at the table, they'd be roasting the preacher. They didn't like what he said, what he's doing, blah, blah, blah. And it's typical rebellion. And I know it's hard to believe. I, I know you're struggling. There are some people, despite my many years of teaching the Torah, they don't like me that that terribly much. And they complain about me. Instead of asking a question and getting whatever their concern was answered and taken care of, they'd much rather talk to other people and mumble and grumble and complain and the children of Israel in the wilderness did this a lot. And as a result, it brought about great disunity in the camp and great discouragement. It became to the point where it wasn't a peaceful atmosphere. It was a disgusting atmosphere. People were not enjoying their lives. It was, it was turned into a grind and so forth. The guy that sits around and complains about this, that, and everything else and grows bitter and cynical and so forth, all he's doing is destroying what little life he has left in him. And if you get a whole bunch of people doing it, it will spring into rebellion. And in fact, here in the future portions, we're going to hear a story about the Great Rebellion. All this mumbling and grumbling and complaining and so forth yields itself into this grumbling mess. If you were to come, if you do come, to the Feast of Tabernacles event that Lion Lamb hosts us here in Oklahoma, and you were to drive into the campground, you're going to go past a sign that's just outside the gate, and there's a white bucket sitting below the sign. And it says, leave all complaints and bumbling and grumbling in this bucket. Do not bring any of that stuff in the camp. And one of the keys for leadership in a successful congregation or group or fellowship of brethren is you've got to be constantly on your guard to remove the mumbling and grumbling. The first moment you hear of such a thing, go get it corrected. Go get it taken care of. Go to the person. Find out what's going on. Get it dismissed. Get it done. Get it over with. There is no wisdom in sitting back and just letting people mumble and grumble and, and get all upset about nothing because it spiritually will do great harm. Now, the people who are mumbling or grumbling, let me take their side for a moment. The people who are mumbling or grumbling have gotten the idea that based on their observations and their perceptions of what's going on, that they know better than other people. That in the case of their complaining about the leader, they know better than the leader, and they believe they have the authority to critique the leader. Let me go ahead and just tell you, before God, you don't have that authority. You don't have it. Before God, you, you came to him and you said, I will sit down under the instruction of the person you sent to, to teach me, and I will recognize the authority, and I will receive the instruction from them that they give. That was the whole idea of the people acknowledging, whatsoever you say and command, Lord, we will do. Well, guess what he did? 
He set up the priesthood. He set up Moses as the leaders. He set up the princes. He said, everybody follow them. But you know, in the tribes, well, they didn't like their particular priests, prince. They, they complained, but they didn't like Aaron. They complained about him. They complained. They didn't like Moses. They complained about him and so forth. They're not following what they said they would do. Well, you're probably sat there thinking in your congregation, your fellowship, I, I didn't agree to that. That's not what I understand. I ain't following no man. I want to follow God. So you come into the congregation. I'm up here testifying to you that God has called me to be a teacher. You've recognized me as such, and you have taken a seat before me to receive my instruction. You granted me the authority to teach. Now, let me tell you about all teaching. It's a little bit like a harvest of grain. And when you bring all the harvest in, what you do is on your own is you go to a place and you thresh it out. You toss it up in the air and let the wind blow the chaff away. The good grain comes back down. You're supposed to take all instruction that you receive and you're supposed to thresh it out. Glean the truths that are appropriate to you. Apply those truths. And so the other stuff, let the wind blow it away. Don't worry about there was too much chaff. Just, just let it blow away. You focus in on the good stuff. Now, if you're here and we're doing that process and you have submitted to me by taking a seat before me to receive the instruction, and then all you do is mumble and grumble and make complaints against me, you yourself have violated what you said. You don't get in trouble with me. Quite honestly, and I say this in all love, I don't care what you think of me. I wasn't doing it because of you. I was doing it because the Lord told me to do it. He's my master. He's the one I answer to. I don't answer to you. And by the way, you don't, you don't really answer to other people as well. You answer to the Lord. You made a commitment to the Lord that you wanted to be instructed. He's instructing you, and now you're complaining about the instructor he sent to you? Do you know how silly that looks? How ridiculous that is? That is no different than what we're reading right here in this Torah portion about what the children of Israel did with Moses and Aaron. And they were complaining. And in fact, one of the things that comes out of it very clearly is the complaint was not against Moses. It was against the Lord. The murmuring and the complaining they were bellyaching about what God had done. Now, let's go ahead and just take that for a moment. How successful do you think you're going to be when you get to have a sit down with God and you get to list off all the things that you thought were disappointing and that you didn't like that he did? Tell me how that conversation's gonna go. You think you are smarter than he is? You think you can offer correction to him? You have failed to understand who he is. He's the creator of the universe. He made the laws and the rules for everything. And you want to come and make adjustments to them based on your experience or your feelings? There is a very, very powerful thing that we have to learn that comes out of this Torah portion, particularly for those of us in the last generation. Let me go ahead and just tell you that in the at the end of the age and the, the things that are coming, the, the greater exodus, the, the great tribulation, the coming of the Lord and so forth, this is not going to be on an individual personal level. This is not going to be convenient or comfortable. The very words escaping, surviving, and enduring, none of those words come with padded seats. None of it has the right air conditioning level or heat level. It, it, all the creature comforts are missing from those things. And a lot of times people complain because they can't get the right creature comfort, the right feeling about things. If you think it's tough now, wait till we get then. There's a reason why they call it a time of distress as the world has never seen before. There's a reason why they call it the great tribulation. And tribulation means trials and tribulations, distress, difficulties, problems. 
It's not going to be easy. And yet God fully expects us to get through that successfully and still be trusting the Lord and still be praising the Lord. And I think if we could somehow absorb the story of what happened with the children of Israel in the wilderness and the things that Moses was trying to express in this book, it would be very helpful for us in the future that we would have our faith more powerful than our discontentment and dissatisfaction that might or frustration that might bubble up. We need to learn now how to get along with one another. We need, we're not going to learn it then. We need to learn that now so that when we get there, we're prepared for the days that will be future. That's our portion for this week. I look forward to sharing the next portion with you next Sabbath. Shabbat Shalom to all of you. you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.